God, as we have watched and observed and been reminded and sung and worshipped and prayed uh, and listened attentively to, to Gladys and thought again about your story, we ask that you would help us to continue to be attentive to you, to your spirit, to your way, uh, to your reality, uh, to the things that you would have us know, understand, and become. Give us hearts that are receptive soil to your word. Give us eyes that are good to see, ears that are good to hear. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way, shape, or form, or deviate from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So chapter 27, the end of chapter 27, and then uh, on into chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel. Listen closely, this is God's word. The next day, the one uh, after preparation day. So uh, they, pre- preparation day is Friday for the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, so uh, the next day, the one after preparation day, so Saturday morning, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor. Sir, they said, we remember that while Jesus was still alive, everyone knows he's dead now. He's dead. It was a public event. Sir, they said, remember that while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver, reference to Jesus, said, after three days I will rise again. So people knew this. So give the order for the tomb of Jesus to be made secure or extra secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard then, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone that was already there and posting the guard. So the tomb in which Jesus had already been placed was already closed up with some very large stone. In addition, now a seal is put on it, a seal of some sort that they felt was secure and a guard or another guard posted. Verse 1 of chapter 28. After the Sabbath now, so it's Sunday morning, what we would call the first day of the week, Sunday morning. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, which is what many of us have done when a loved one has died, is it not? We go to the gravesite, to the columbarium, to wherever, and we sit and we grieve and we pray. After the Sabbath on the... At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Magdalene went and to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. And this is the final time, or the fourth and final passage in Matthew's gospel, where this Greek word, seismos, or a form of that word, shows up and occurs. Each time at some really important or earth-shaking event in Matthew's gospel. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his birth. This is the fourth and the final time that either the earth shakes in Matthew's gospel or some earth-shaking, earth-shattering event occurs. There was, verse 2, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and go into the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. The angel does this. His, the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards, now there's more than one of them, were so afraid of him that they shook, same Greek word, and became like dead men. They're basically shaking in fear to the point of just being paralyzed and lifeless. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, which is what angels always say, because despite what Hallmark would have us believe, 
Encountering an angel is a terrifying event. We have no categories for angels, for bright, shiny people who radiate lightning. And so the angel says, hey, listen, don't be afraid. Because quite understandably, they would have been terrified, as would you and I, in such a place. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. Everyone knew it. And remember, when someone was crucified, they died every time, 100%. There was no way out of crucifixion. Crucifixion always ends in death. Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid still, yet filled with joy, somehow both, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them, greetings, he said, hi. (laughs) They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Again, of course they would be afraid, filled with joy, but afraid. Go and tell my brothers, in other words, my disciples, to go to Galilee, up in the north. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. The chief priests were dirty, and they had money. And they, just like they just paid off Judas several days earlier, so now... They pay off the soldiers. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, in other words, Pilate, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And it's so interesting that the soldiers, once they realized the tomb is empty, Jesus is gone, went to the chief priests. They don't report to the chief priests. But they went to the chief priests because they must have been terrified of going to their commanding officer for a blatant failure of duty. This is not too hard, guys. Tomb is shut, tomb is sealed, big rock, you stand guard, you have the spears, you're the strong guys, keep watch. And yet the tomb is now empty. And so afraid to go to their commanding officers, they sneak over to the chief priests, who probably have a reputation by this point of looking for cooperators who can be paid off with all their money. Back to the disciples. Mary and Mary reported to the disciples what the angel had told them, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they they too worshipped him, but some doubted. And how incredibly honest of Matthew, the author of this gospel, to tell us that. Because he's one of them. To say that they actually, in all of that, after all of that, had some doubt. And by sharing that remark in his gospel, uh, Matthew indirectly shows us how truthful he is as an author to what really and actually happened. Because in saying that some doubted, there was doubt among them, even after all of that. He's really not making himself or his friends look all that great. Certainly not as good as they could have looked. 
But Matthew opts for truth and candor. Verse 18. Then Jesus came out to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth, which Walter quoted for us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus had a prolific teaching ministry. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, forever. And there ends Matthew's gospel. I am with you always to the very end of the age. So says the one who we profess in the Apostles' Creed was crucified, dead, and buried, but who presumably exited the tomb before the stone was rolled away, who suddenly appeared on the road to Mary and Mary, who somehow showed up on a mountain dozens of miles away up in Galilee shortly thereafter, and also in an upper room, though its doors were locked, and on the road to Emmaus, and eventually to more than 500 people, eyewitnesses, all at exactly the same time, and on a different occasion, on a road to Damascus, where he had revealed himself to a zealous Pharisee named Saul, an anti-Jesus guy, if there ever was one. And all of that started with an empty tomb, a mysteriously and confoundingly empty tomb. And at first the questions were, why was the tomb empty? Where was Jesus' body? But the questions quickly became, how was Jesus alive? Where is Jesus? What's going on here? And what does all of this mean? Nobody had a category for any of this. We don't have categories for these kinds of things. All of us have been to a funeral, to a graveside service. Never once has the casket been opened and the person climbed out. Never once has the casket been opened and everyone looks around and says, what? where's the body? We don't have a category for this. And yet the evidence today for the resurrection of Jesus then remains overwhelming. I've shared this before. Chuck Colson, an attorney and political advisor in who in 1969 and 70 was special counsel to then-President Richard Nixon and who gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal for being one of the conspirators of that scandal, eventually pled guilty in 1974 to obstructing of justice and was the first member of the Nixon administration to be incarcerated for his role in the scandal. This Chuck Colson, who later came to, who later came to after a transforming experience with a risen Christ, a new kind of life, he wrote these words in his biography. I know the resurrection is a fact. He's a bright guy. I know it's a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once wavering or denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if Jesus' resurrection was not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 measly apostles could keep alive for 40 years at threat of death and persecution to them? Absolutely impossible. 
And that was just the first 12 of Jesus' apostles, but there were many others like them, literally hundreds and then thousands of other first-generation first generation resurrection Christians who had seen Jesus alive after he had been publicly executed. And that was the first 12, and then there was another uh, generation, and then there's the exceptional case of the Apostle Paul. There's no other explanation for the Apostle Paul, author eventually of more books in the New Testament than anyone else, who went from persecuting and overseeing the execution of Jesus' people, of Jesus' followers, from being an angry, mean, zealous, religious fanatic, to being history's most important witness, most ardent advocate, that this man whose parents named him Saul and grew up being called Saul had a transforming experience with a person who had been summarily executed earlier by the Romans, but who once again somehow was alive. Alive. And not just alive, but alive with power. Power to knock him down. There's no horse in the road to Damascus, by the way, but Paul is knocked down by the light, by the voice, by the power. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is actually so overwhelming that in order to not believe it requires the construction of some alternative explanation that actually requires, I would say, a bigger leap of faith or some sort of willful denial today. And I don't say that because I'm a pastor. I don't believe any of this because I'm a pastor. Rather, I'm a pastor because I believe this. Not that everyone who believes this needs to be a pastor. That certainly isn't the case. But I don't believe or profess this because I'm a pastor, but rather I'm in these shoes because I believe this wholeheartedly. And I can say that I arrived at this conclusion many years ago despite the fact, or maybe because, I am by nature an intensely logical person. Sometimes coldly logical. Ask those who know me well. I am analytical to a fault, an overly critical thinker, who for whatever reason very often begins at a point of skepticism on new matters. And I'm a person, some people I see, it seems faith is so easy for them. Faith is not easy for me. Taking leaps of faith I find particularly difficult. And yet this one is persuasive. It was, it has been for me, and it is. So what does all of this mean for us today? What is its significance? And at this point, I think those of us who are here this morning are in a lot of different places. You're in a lot of different places. I'm talking to people who are in a lot of different places. Some of you have seemingly always believed all of the core truths or beliefs of Orthodox Christianity seriously uh, and never seriously questioned any of them, either outwardly, publicly, vocally, or inwardly. Others here this morning maybe grew up in the church and never gave a lot of thought to these things. Though in recent years, you've begun to ask more questions and think more curiously about these things and the church that professes them with you or has. Others of you may be new to the Christian faith and your understanding and confidence in these things is small at best, but growing. And still others of you may be only tangentially a part of the church or you have understood yourself to be a Christian either by default or by culture or upbringing, but you've never given any of this much deep consideration. 
It's just where you've lived life. And it's to the last three groups, those of you who might put yourself in one of those last three groups, that I want to talk for just a couple of minutes. Every Friday morning, a bunch of men and I get together. We study the Bible together and pray and encourage one another. And we just go through books of the Bible one at a time straight through. We're going through the book of Acts right now. You're welcome to join us. Open deal. No preparation required. Friday morning is 8 o'clock across the street. We're going through the book of Acts right now. This past Friday, we got to the second half of Acts 17. The full name of this book in the Bible is the Acts of the Apostle. We got to Paul, and uh, Paul's on his second missionary journey around the Mediterranean area. He's crossed over the Aegean Sea and made his way down through some uh, Greek and Roman cities to Athens now. Yeah, the same like Athens that's there today. And Athens was back then and had been for centuries, far more than it is today, sort of the uh, center, the world center of philosophy and thinking and discussion and conversation and exploration about philosophy and big ideas and cosmology and all those sorts of things. And the Apostle Paul, who again has had his own transformative experience and is out on journeying around the world now at great cost and risk to himself, shows up at a place in Athens called the Areopagus, which was kind of the center point where all the great thinkers came together. Every day, the academics, the erudite, the seekers, to discuss all of these things and sometimes to talk about the gods because Athens was a city that was full of idols to all sorts of different gods, literally hundreds and hundreds made of stone and wood and metal. And as Paul interacted with the great thinkers at the Areopagus that day, he took the opportunity to share with them about the incarnate God, Jesus, and the good news connected to him. And in verse 31 of chapter 17, we read these words that Paul spoke. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. In other words, Jesus. God has given proof of all of these things that he has said and that he has done and that he will do. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. God raising Jesus from the dead was not just a tag-on for the early church, nor was it just another miracle. Rather, the resurrection of Jesus, the God-man, was proof and a demonstration that everything that God had said beforehand and everything that Jesus had said beforehand and everything that Jesus had done and been about was true and had merit and warranted then and warrants now humanity's fullest attention. I'll say that again. For the Apostle Paul and the first generation of Jesus followers and for all the early church, the resurrection of Jesus was proof and a demonstration that everything that God had said beforehand and everything that Jesus had said and everything that Jesus had done and been about was true and it had merit, and that it warranted then and warrants now humanity's fullest attention. In other words, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can conclude, we can believe that everything that Jesus said was true. His resurrection was proof of that. He said that he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise, and he was, and he did, which makes all of the other words Jesus stated, said, proclaimed, announced, spoke, 
completely trustworthy, including Jesus' words about himself and who he was and what he was about, about the Father's great love for humanity, about the best way to live, how to live, what to do, what not to do. All that we talked about for the last months on the Sermon on the Mount has merit because Jesus was raised from the dead. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can know that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just another Roman execution, and there were many, but instead was God's divine plan for the payment of the debts of our sin in God's justice economy so that we might be forgiven. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, all the garbage from my past and your past doesn't follow me around, doesn't follow you around. Instead of living under the curse of condemnation, and failure, and not good enough, and shame, we can rest in the love of a God who describes himself as Daddy, as Abba, as Father. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can know that the great and final enemy of all of us, death, has actually been defeated, overcome, conquered. All of us are terminal. The death rate for humanity is 100%. Still. But the resurrection of Jesus asserts that we don't have to fear death, that we can face death, the death of these bodies with confidence and peace in the presence, power, and love of God who raised Jesus, and that these bodies and these lives are not the end, but that what awaits us by the grace of God in Jesus is a new and heavenly kingdom or reality. It awaits us. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can know that power is available to us. We've talked about it. We've sung about it. There is in what Paul wrote to the Ephesians a power that God used to, ex that God exerted in raising Jesus from the dead. And this power is somehow still available to us, not as electricity, not as muscles, but in some profound existential but truly true way Power to be healed of all sorts of maladies. Power to push back against the temptations that have crippled us. Power to forgive one's enemies. Which if you've ever tried to forgive your enemy, you know takes some sort of divine, heavenly resource that most of us just don't have on our own. Power to forgive our enemies. Power to love our enemies. Who's got that power? And power to literally become a new creation in, through, by and with the risen, alive Jesus. Indeed, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, not just another holiday on the Christian or the church calendar. And the message and preaching of the early church was consistent with and emphatic about this. Matthew and Luke recount parts of Jesus' birth. All of the gospel writers talk about Jesus' baptism. In various ways, the gospel writers record Jesus' acts along the way in his public ministry of healing people, loving people, confronting injustice and evil and rigid religious leaders. They tell us about Jesus speaking truth and expanding the circle and about a whole new kind of goodness that begins in our hearts. And a disproportionately large, of, large part of each of the four Gospels is about the last week of Jesus' life, culminating in his crucifixion on a cross for the sins of the world, period. But the continual emphasis in the early churches, preaching and teaching and exclamation and proclamation was always that all of these things that constitute good news of Jesus or the Gospel of Jesus are topped off and confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus. Always. Go through the book of Acts. 
At every point, they're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus as proof of the good news. From the earliest days, Christians gather for their weekly celebrations, not on Fridays, which would have made sense to a lot of us. Thank God it's Friday. Not on Saturdays, which was the Jewish Sabbath, and that's where all of the original disciples came from, from the Jewish world and Jewish tradition. But instead, on Sundays, which was the first day of the week, they cut into their work week. They said, we're not coming into work on the first day of the week, boss, because we're gathering to remember and celebrate not Jesus' death or his crucifixion, as important as that was, not Silent Saturday, as profound as that must have been, but we meet and we gather every week on the first day of the week, cutting into our work week because Jesus was raised from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Of course, there's the idea in our world today, in particular our culture, that it doesn't really matter what one believes because all religions are the same, all faiths are the same. But I would beg to differ with all due respect. Most religions, most faiths make some claim about God or about gods or about enlightenment or nirvana in various ways. But they describe God or gods or the existence of God in very different ways, not in all the same way. Second, most religions or faiths hold to some sort of ethical code, the purpose of which is to govern one's behavior and worldview. Yes, though I would suggest that Jesus' invitation to goodness is higher and purer and more beautiful and virtuous and transformative than any other. Third, the Christian faith is solidly grounded in history rather than myth or legend or fairy tale or fiction. It's grounded in revelation and not revelation just given to one person but revelation given to a variety and a spectrum of people from different points in history. Fourth, no other, histor no other historically grounded religion, faith, or belief system claims that God took on flesh, that God actually became like us human beings, for us human beings. Fifth, the Christian faith is unique in that the justice required by God in judgment is provided by God. And the person of God incarnate, Jesus offering himself, God's self, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that we might be forgiven. Sixth is grace. According to the Christian faith and the way of Jesus, salvation is never earned but only received. It is a gift and wholly a gift from God through and through. First, because no one is good enough to earn it. And second, so that no one can boast that is grace. But finally and finally is the resurrection of Jesus. Which again is the sealing proof of all of the above and that all of the, the above is. It really is. It is true. It is real. It is available. God is available. God is alive. God is love. And God has loved humanity relentlessly in Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection is the proof of all of that. His undeniable proof Resurrection is proof of all of that. That the man and religious leader Jesus of Nazareth existed 2,000 years ago is universally accepted. That he was crucified by Roman authorities is also not seriously debated. And that Jesus was raised from the grave is simply consistent with recorded history and is the most logical explanation for the birth and the blossoming of the Jesus movement in early church history. And that is history. It is history. But what about today? What about today? 
What about you? What about me? Being in relationship with the resurrected Jesus today is not history. And yet it is still possible. Jesus is still resurrected. Jesus, though we read about him in the Bible from 2,000 years ago, and it feels like he's dead, is still very much alive. And just as Jesus revealed himself, first to the Marys and then to the 12, 11, and then to dozens more and then hundreds more and then hundreds more, Jesus actually continues to reveal himself to people today in a variety and spectrum of different ways. He can reveal himself to you as well. And our understanding is that he desires to. Most often he reveals himself to people who are seeking him, who are open to him, who would welcome him, though sometimes, occasionally not. For example, the Apostle Paul. But more often than not, the living, resurrected, alive, still, today, very much so Jesus desires to reveal himself to you and to come into your life with power if he hasn't already. So this morning, before we leave, I'm just going to bow my head and we'll have a moment of silence. And if you've never desired to know the living, alive Jesus or wanted or welcomed him into your life, today may be your day. The Apostle Paul had a day, the Marys had a day, the Apostles had a day. Eventually, all of those in that first generation had some sort of eyewitness or personal experience with Jesus. The testimony of history, though it's all history, is that Jesus continues to meet people today in a variety of ways. May we incline ourselves toward the living Jesus in that way today. Would you pray with me? God, our music is more than just notes and more than just words. It is testimony and it is testimony from our hearts of our faith and our hope. And our knowledge that you are still alive and among us. Not the historical founder of a dead religion. That's not what we believe but the living King who desires to take up residence in every one of our lives and every one of our hearts. We ask that you, by your grace, would open each of us to that if you haven't already and if we haven't already. We thank you for the proof for those of us who need it of your resurrection and of your life, not only in history, but throughout history and still today. May that be for us strength, those who need it, and build upon that faith and desire and hope and confidence. Come, Lord Jesus, among us. Fill our cups. Fill us with your spirit. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.